Turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. We are continuing our, uh, our journey through the book of Acts. If you remember two weeks ago, Joe was preaching on Lydia. And, we'll, and um, Joe will be back. He's, he's out of the pulpit for a couple of weeks uh, for some health reasons. He's uh, doing better and planning on being back, uh, I think at least by June 4th, back in the pulpit. So um, remember with this passage, remember where Joe left us. Remember that we're in Philippi. The gospel has come to Europe. And the, we, we have the, the scene at the, at the river with Lydia and with her household and with those ladies that were there praying. Then the second scene, and if you think of Philippi, is you think of three, three acts, right? The first act is at the, is at the river. The second act is in the Agora, the marketplace. And that's where the, uh, the uh, slave girl is exercised, creates a commotion, and eventually uh, Paul and Silas are seized. Uh, we don't know Timothy and Luke are not. And the supposition there is, is that, remember, the Jews are being branded as tra- troublemakers by the Roman. Claudius is going to dispel them. So they're, they're branded as troublemakers. A little bit of anti-Semitism here, we think. That's why Paul and Silas end up in jail. Timothy and Luke do not. But remember, they are taken. They are stripped. They are beaten publicly with rods. They are caned. And then they are mobbed. The mob kind of does their thing to them. They end up taking them to the jailer. The jailer throws them in jail, not just in jail, but they're in stocks, which means they are laying down with their feet spread. So think of them, they're bloodied, they're bruised, they're beaten up, and they've been brutalized. And that's, that's where we pick up this. Now, this passage, there's gonna be lots of irony. Luke is giving us a summary. We're not gonna know all of the details. There's lots of little details we wish we knew. But Luke is giving us the big picture here of this, these events. And so as we go through here, remember this is all happening with these bloodied, brutally beaten missionaries laying in jail. So pick up with me in verse 25. And let's read through. It's a big passage, but I want to make sure we, we, we read the whole thing. About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, hey, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, 
They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid. And when they heard that they were Roman citizens, or when they heard that they were Roman citizens, they were afraid. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out to the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we know you are the God of all power. You are the God of might. You are the God of thunder. You are the God of earthquakes. You are the God of storms. And Father, we worship you and acknowledge that you are a God who is all-powerful. We, always, we also acknowledge that you are a God that is good and a God who is faithful and truthful. And we worship you, and we ask today that as we come to you before your word, that your spirit would, would teach us what you want us to know, that you would encourage us, and yes, you might crush us, but that you would liberate us and give us persevering faith that we might cling to the Lord Jesus even this day. Father, we ask that your word would be a light to our path and to, a lamp to our feet and that we would be transformed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, it's really helpful for us to remember the, the context of, of the book of Acts. Remember the Romans. The Romans are excellent administrators. They are excellent at management. They are excellent at process. Octavian in 31 BC, when he finally defeats Antony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Actium, after that, what happens is the, 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 whole, um, the whole empire is really established. And Octavian is remembering and reflecting on Alexander. Remember Alexander in, in, three, in the 300s BC, Alexander and his father Philip of Macedon. Philip of Macedon kind of brings Greek Greece together. Macedonia and Greece kind of brings them together. And then Alexander takes that and expands all the way to India. Think about it, all the way through Palestine, all the way through uh, Jordan and Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan, all the way to India goes Alexander. But Alexander's problem was he didn't have good supply lines and he didn't have good structure. And, and as soon as he would leave a city, and he would establish the leadership there. He would, he would completely pillage them and then establish the leadership there and then move on. They were, as soon as he left, they were rebelling because he did not have the ability to be able to manage an empire. Octavian reflects on that and says, you know, Alexander was good at conquering, but he wasn't very good at ruling. And Octavian determines that he is going to rule well, and he's going to establish taking Rome from a republic to an empire. And so the Roman Empire is established. And the Roman Empire, again, is, is based upon order. It's based upon order and peace. The Pax Romana begins with Octavian, really goes for about 200 years, this period of stability and what Octavian establishes, the Roman roads and the Roman communication system, and there's a focus on everybody being in their place. An order in their mind was 
that just like the legions is where is your spot? You get behind your spot, behind your leader, and you know your place and you function in your place. That's the Roman idea. And they are brutally focused on that process. And that's the way they rule. And that's why they are protecting the communication and the trade. And they're protecting the money coming back to Rome. And there's a, they are very good administrators and they're very focused on process. They believe that societal order was the foundation for order, for stability, for the peaceful transition of power, and for increasing the standard of living of everybody who they ruled. And so the idea of peace and order and stability are important to them. But the way they achieve it is through the brutality of the Roman legions. The Roman legions, the power of Rome, the iron power of Rome is firm, it's brutal, the ends completely justify the means. And when they rule, they, they think of Jerusalem in 70 AD. What do they do? The Jews rebel. The Jews have been troublesome for years. And what do they do? They completely destroy the city and they kill everyone there. It's the brutality. And for them, that was all right. It was the right thing to do. Why? Because it was a signal to everybody in the area. If you cross us, if you cross the mighty power of Rome, you'll be crushed into the gravel. And that brutality of the Romans is important for us to know because it's the backdrop as the church and as the gospel goes out. The gospel is going to go and engage Greek culture. It's also going to engage the Roman machine. And the Roman machine, and that shouldn't surprise us, right? Because our Lord engaged the Roman machine and what happened to him? He's crushed. The Romans killed him and they killed him in a crucifixion. And so that's the backdrop as the, as the gospel goes to Europe and goes to Philippi. And we see these three scenes of Lydia, the slave girl, and the Philippian jailer be thinking about this idea of they are coming against the Roman machine. Order, peace, stability, know your place. Remember at this time, probably 60% of everybody in the Roman, under the Roman rule are slaves. It's keep your place. They did not it was all, their rule was based on intimidation. And so you see that intimidation happening in Philippi, right? You come into our city, you create problems, you're gonna pay the price, we want you to know it, and we want everybody else to know it because that is the way we are going to prevent. Um, we're gonna keep our place and we're gonna keep our power and authority and we are going to keep Rome happy with us. So in this passage, I think... There are many ironies, and there are many things to think about that you could camp on, but I think the major idea is the mighty power of God is displayed. And I don't like, I don't like the way I wrote this, but I couldn't come up with anything better. So the, the mighty power of God is displayed, crushing, preserving, and liberating people. And we're gonna see it really under a couple of heads. There are three scenes in this, in this passage. There's going to be the jail at midnight, the jail in the early morning hours, and then you're going, to go to the, you're going to go to the Philippian jailer's house and then back to the jail when the magistrates come and send them away. So really there's like three scenes there. Midnight, the middle of the, middle of the morning, or the early morning hours, and the, uh, 
the business hours of the next, the next day. So midnight in the jail. Remember, again, the, the, the prisoner's conditions. They're stripped, they're beaten, they've been caned, they're mobbed, they're in the inner jail, in stocks. And what do we find them doing? I mean, that, that's what, you would not expect that, right? It's unlikely. They are singing hymns, they are praising God, they are praying, and everybody is listening to them. And so you see that the Apostle Paul, it was not a, a stranger to suffering. Remember, in 2 Corinthians, he's going to say, I was caned three times, I was beaten by the Jews five times. Remember, he goes through that, that litany of his resume, of his resume of suffering for the gospel to the Corinthians who were doubting him and his, and his authority. And when he, leaves, <clears throat> when he leaves Lystra, he says to the, after being beaten almost to death, he says, through many tribulations and trials, we must enter the kingdom of God. So these guys were, were and we know Silas had, had scars, we know Paul had scars. These guys were veteran sufferers, and they find themselves in prison, and notice their mindset. They look at prison as an opportunity. We know that Paul is going to say in, to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1, and Philippians chapter 1 is 10 years later. Paul's in prison in Rome. The Philippians send their pastor Epaphroditus with a gift. They've been supporting him all through his missionary journeys, and they send with a gift, and they're concerned with him because he's in jail, and he says, don't be concerned. I'm imprisoned, but the gospel's not. The gospel's permeating. The gospel's permeating through the jailers, through the, through the, through the Roman legionnaires who are part of the prison system, all the way to the imperial guard and into Caesar's household. The gospel is flowing. The gospel is going. Don't worry about me. He's mission-centric. We also know that Paul has told us that he considers the suffering of this present time not to be worthy, not to even be compared to the glory that comes after that suffering. So these missionaries are determined and they are suffering, but they are suffering well. I was thinking about this, this little book, Singing in the Fire by Faith Cook. She gives an example of John Bradford. And John Bradford was a uh, chaplain of King Edward VI. King Edward VI was a Protestant. He died. His half-sister Mary was a, a Catholic. And so Bradford and his compatriots are, are, are jailed. And they're jailed because they won't accept the Mass, because the Mass says to them, the, they, they see the finished work of Christ, and they see the Mass, which really says the, the work of Christ is not finished. And so they're willing to die for that. And Bradford, at the very end of his life, he's taken to the, the fire. The fires are already going. He's taken to the fire. And after begging the people uh, for, his, for forgiveness, and after forgiving everyone who's wronged him and making things right, he calls England to Reformation. And then he turns to the 19-year-old boy that's beside him, and he says these words, be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. It said that, that uh, he had elsewhere said, us they may imprison, they may bind and burn as they do, but our cause, religion and doctrine, which we confess, they shall never be able to vanquish and put away. So we see this view of holding up under suffering. Now for us, it's important 
for us to understand that even though we're not maybe suffering for the gospel's sake in that same way that the apostle, maybe not that extreme, we do suffer. And we, do, we are called to suffer, whether it be for the gospel or whether it be because of age, because of the sin in the world, we are called to suffer and to stand, to stand strong. We have the opportunity to suffer well, and we ought to suffer well. And how do we suffer well? We suffer well by looking at things, at passages like this and understanding how seriously some of our spiritual forefathers took the promises of God and applied them to their life. We ought to suffer well. We ought to not discount the value that our suffering well has on those around us. During extreme suffering, people are watching us, our family are watching us, and our conduct validates and empowers the message of, that we proclaim. Think about the, the parable of the sower. Remember right, the parable of the sower? The, seed, the sower seed, sows the seed indiscriminately. Some falls on rocky ground. Some, fall, some falls on the, way, on the path. Some falls on rocky ground, some falls within thorns and thistles, and others fall on, falls on good soil. As Jesus is explaining that, he's saying, the message that falls on the path is eaten by the birds. Satan takes it away, and they don't really even hear the gospel. The, the, the seed that falls on the rocky ground, that grows up very quickly, spurts up with joy, receives the gospel with joy. But then when pain and suffering and tribulation and persecution come upon it, the scorching of the sun, it dies away because it doesn't have any roots. It doesn't have any way to get nourishment. It was not real. And the third one is the cares of life, right? The thorns and thistles, which are the cares for riches and for life. And then the fourth one is one that grows strong and is fruitful. Think about what that is saying is the way you, valid, you validate, the way your faith is verified that it's real is through suffering and is through you standing firm in suffering. Now that's difficult for us, right? I mean, I, I aspire as an older man to finish well. I want to finish well. I want to live consistently with what I have said and what I have taught my whole life. I want to finish well. I want my life to be a tract to my grandchildren and to my children that just like my grandmother's faith was a tract for me, is when I doubt the reality of the promises, when I doubt the reality of God's saving transformation, I think of those examples of people have, that have gone before, that have had great faith, and it testifies to me, and some of you have those people in your life as well, who have suffered well. I aspire to suffer well. And suffering well means not that you're perfect, not that you hold up, I remember in a time when, when we, my wife and I were suffering and losing our son, is I had read a book called uh, Trusting Through the Tears. And I was reading the book and I, and I was really encouraged by it, but there was a big gap between me and that guy who wrote the book. And I was talking to a, uh, to a friend who, had, who, was, who came alongside me and said, hey, what are, you look, what are you reading? What's been helpful? I wanna read that. And so she read the book and and I was commenting to her about it, and I said, you know, I'm not where he's at. He gets to the point where he says, I'm glad God took my son because of what it has meant for us as a family and for me personally and my, and my cherishing of Christ. I'm, 
I'm glad that God did what he did. And I said, I'm not there. I I can't be there. I'm just not there. And her statement to me was, "Look look at how long it's been since the event happened in his life. It's like 15 years. He said, you're like 15 days, Scott. It's gonna take time. It's gonna take time for you to get there. But I wanna suffer well. And I encourage you, let's suffer well. Let's live our lives consistently with the promises. The promises are the promises are the promises regardless of your circumstance. Think of the Apostle Paul. He's gonna talk to the Philippians and he's gonna say, I can do all things through Christ. The context is when I'm beaten, when I'm hungry, when I'm starving, when I'm kicked, I can live for Christ. I can do all things through Christ. When I'm feasting and I'm, everything's going well, I can live for Christ. In all things, in all circumstances, I can live because of the strength of Christ strengthening me. That's the way we, that's the way we suffer, right? It's through the strength of Christ, through the promises of God encouraging us and we take them and we bank them. So we need to encourage, we want to look at these missionaries. They suffered well. And notice the apologetic value of that is people noticed. It made an impression. We don't know the background that's going to happen in the next scene of how the Philippian jailer got to where he was at. But undoubtedly, it had to do, it had to be based on the context of how these prisoners reacted. So that's the power of God displayed at midnight in the jail. Number two, notice the power of God displayed in the conversion of the Philippian jailer. So the earthquake happens. I don't know how many of you have been in an earthquake. I think I've been in a lot of little earthquakes, but in 1971, when I was a little kid, I was a real little kid, no, but uh, I was t- about 10 years old, and I remember living in California, there was a big earthquake, 6.6 on the, the Richter scale in, in the San Fernando Valley. It just kind of destroyed homes. We were about 40, 50 miles away, but I remember that 12 seconds of shaking, and we got out of school for a month because it broke all the water mains going into our school. It was a really big deal, that, that earthquake, and it broke all of the concrete, and it created havoc. I think killed at least 50 or 60 people. Well, an earthquake happens and it destroys the jail and or at least opens up the doors. All of the chains fall off. The jailer is is sleeping. He wakes up. He sees that and he immediately is in despair. He immediately, he went to sleep with all of his world being in good shape. He wakes up in an instant and everything has changed. And so he's getting ready to get his sword out to kill himself because he knows that's what the Romans will do. Because again, the brutality of the Roman, it's structure, it's the rule. You're the jailer, you're responsible for those under, that are imprisoned under you that you're given responsibility for. They leave, they get away, they jailbreak, you die. And he knows that seriously. Paul gets in his way and says, hey, listen, stop, we're all here. There's no jailbreak. We've not left. And the jailer at that point rushes in. They put the, they put the uh, torches up and he falls down at Paul's feet and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now think about it. We don't know all of the background. 
Paul, or, uh, Luke doesn't give us all of the detail. But what we do know is that this jailer has this moment of judgment day clarity where he realizes that there are but two powers in the universe. And he realizes that he's on the wrong side. And he says, what must I do to be on the right side? What must I do, sirs, to be saved? Immediately, he's not worrying about those that can kill his body. He's worrying about him who can put him in hell. That's what's changed in the jailer, is he's got this moment of judgment day clarity. Now, notice how, the, how Paul answers. Paul answers with a very simple message. What is it? Very simple message. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. A very simple message. Think of John in Jesus in John chapter 3. Going as he's built, he's talking to Nicodemus and he's building up to John 3:16. John 3, 14 and 15. And he references a time in, in Israel's history where the people are, are ambling towards the promised land. And they're complaining and they're bitter and they're saying, hey, we are tired of the food. We are tired of the water. We're tired of the dust and the dirt and the death and we're tired of this. We would be much better back in Egypt. Why have you taken us out here? And their complaining gets so loud that the Lord judges them and he, puts, he sends fiery serpents into their midst. And those serpents bite and those who are bitten die. And so the people are in disarray. They come back to Moses and they say, Moses, we have sinned. Please go to God and get mercy for us. So Moses prays. God tells him to, to do a bronze serpent and to put it on a pole, and then to lift the pole. And then Moses tells the people, when you're bit, look at the serpent. Look and live. Jesus uses that analogy when he's talking about himself, and he says, listen. So just like Moses in the wilderness lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that those who would look to him would live. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Simple message. There's a story told of a guy named J.T. Smith who uh, was the head chaplain in the British Army in World War I. And I haven't been able to find the story, but it's from uh, a friend who told me this story. But, it, but he was training chaplains. And he would tell the chaplains in their final, as they would go through all their training, their final exam would be this. He would say, I'm a soldier in the British Army. I have received a mortal wound, and I have three minutes to live. I'm afraid of death. I'm afraid of hell. I'm afraid of condemnation. And the test was, you as a chaplain, what do you tell them? What do you say to them? What's your message to them? And if a prospective chaplain would get all bogged down and you know, you've got to do communion and you've got to be baptized and you've got to go through these rites and you've got to do this and you've got to do that, they'd be disqualified. Because Smith said, you're not doing anything except making his misery worse 
because he can't do those things. What's your message of hope? What's your message of salvation? And friends, we know that there's only one message of hope and salvation, and that's the finished work of Jesus Christ, the finished work. This week we saw the passing of Tim Keller. That's a, that's a, mighty, a mighty man, a mighty, a mighty hero that's gone to be with the Lord. Tim Keller, uh, I re- recently read his book, or I listened to his book on Audible, uh, Colin Hansen's book, about Tim Keller and the making of his mind. And at the end of that book, there are a group of sermons, uh, uh, selections that are in the Audible. I don't know if it's in the book, but there's a sermon by, by Keller on 9-11, right after 9-11. There's a sermon at the Gospel Coalition in 2007. And then there's a couple of other sermons, like one by Elizabeth Elliot, uh, that was meaningful to them and Edmund Clowney. But in that second sermon, Tim Keller talks about when he was starting the, the church, the, the Redeemer in New York City, and he was, he was going back and he was spending a lot of time listening to Martin Lloyd-Jones, who in the 40s and 50s was preaching in England. And he was trying to understand how to evangelize within the church context how to do church, to do church well, but also how to evangelize and how to be a beacon in the city. And one of the distinctions that Lloyd-Jones makes that, that Keller thought was very, very apropos was this distinction. He's saying, make sure your message is good news and not good advice. Good news, not a good advice. And you think of those difference, good news is telling you something good that has happened and it's done and that you can enjoy. What's good advice? It's telling you what you have to do, what you need to do. Is your gospel, is what we preach here good news or is it good advice? Is it a plan for you to help improve yourself? What is it? And it's very important and we see it, the apostle Paul, does he give good advice or does he give good news? gives good news. He points to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to be saved? He has done it. Believe in him. Doesn't tell him anything else that he's supposed to do. So we see the power of the very simple gospel. It is good news. It's the finished work of Christ. I have a friend who, in in a sermon on this passage, uh, who who reflected on the fact that when he was a boy in kindergarten, that the teachers would, when, they, when you had a test or you had an important assignment, they would pin it to your coat, pin it to his coat, and they would send him home. And so the kindergartners would come home and they would have that important piece of paper pinned to their jacket. And he said, you know, as a kindergartner, he didn't realize it was happening because it was on his back, but he said the older kids would make fun of him and, and tease him. Think about that concept of, of that pinning on the back. Think of yourself. If you've got a paper pinned on your back and every test your whole life is recorded back there, every failure, every sin, everything wrong in your life is pinned on your back. Now you are heading into judgment day so that your paper can be evaluated. What's your hope? There is none. You've failed every test. The good news is Jesus passed every test 
with a perfect score. And your hope in eternity is that your paper and his paper get transferred. And that you stand before God with a paper pinned to your back that says, check, 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 check. All green, come into my kingdom. Not because you did anything, but because Christ did it all. That's the finished work of God. That's the good news. The good news is look and live, look and live. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. We see thirdly that this message transforms the jailer and it transforms his family. And this guy changes from a gnarly Roman, the tip of the spear, the, the torturer in the Roman jail, the guy that when, we, when he, we give you this guy, we expect you to make sure he never comes back to Philippi. He turns from that guy to a guy who is sensitive, worried about the, the fact that they're hungry, that they're beaten, that they're unclothed, and that they're bleeding. And he takes care of them. And I don't think this is a throwaway. Just like Lydia, after, the, after, the, um, after she's saved, she immediately, the hospitality, the drive to serve and to take care of the missionaries. That happens in the Philippian jailer. And they immediately are transformed by the gospel. They're immediately bound together into a group. They're immediately concerned about each other. And they immediately begin to self-sacrifice to take care of one another. And I, don't, and I think that that's the characteristic of the Philippian church. You're going to see, if you read the book of Philippians, you'll see reference to it over and over and over. The jailer is transformed by the power of God. And just like all of the Christians in the Roman Empire, they begin to be known by their love for each other and their care for the disadvantaged. Because that's characteristic. That's what happens when the gospel comes to an unconverted soul. Now think also, this is an outside conversion, an outsider conversion, right? This is a guy who, who not only has to accept the true God, think of an insider, they already accept the one and true God, but they have to believe in Christ. He has to accept the one true God and believe in Christ all at the same time. It's an outsider conversion and it's uh, sudden. But then last, the power is displayed in the humbling of the city officials. And we don't really, I don't necessarily understand why Paul all of a sudden begins to assert his rights. Why he didn't do it before the beating. Don't know. But they assert their rights afterwards and they say, listen, we want to be apologized to. And we want to be escorted out of town by those guys who ordered our beating. Now, most commentators believe that Paul's not doing this out of spite. He's not doing this to save himself in any way. But what he's doing is he's trying to smooth it out for the new church in Philippi. That he wants the Romans to realize that the gospel and what they've done is not illegal. It's clearly within their rights as Roman citizens to do these things and establish that, that carefulness in the magistrates that don't just assume because something is foreign, something is different, somebody makes a charge that it's right. And so there's a humbling, the power of God humbles these magistrates and they go back and they meet at Lydia's house. And it's pretty cool, it starts at Lydia's house and it ends at Lydia's house as the center for uh, Philippi. Now, it's interesting that Stott makes this statement. He says, it would be hard to imagine a more disparate group 
than the businesswoman, the slave girl, and the jailer. Racially, socially, psychologically, they were all worlds apart. Yet all three were changed by the same gospel, welcomed into the same church, and become a unified group. Now eventually the Roman machine is gonna turn toward the, against the Christians. What happens in church history after this is that eventually what happens is the, the, the empire becomes filled with emperor worship. Caesar Octavian is given the title Augustus, the august one, the supreme one, and that becomes a cult by the middle of the first century. And what's gonna happen is eventually the, um, it's, it's almost when somebody has to say Caesar is Lord, they have to acknowledge that Caesar is God, and it becomes this test of patriotism, kind of like standing at the national anthem. You don't stand at the national anthem, we execute you. You know, that's the kind of view there. Uh, and so that it's gonna get even harder in the Roman up until, up until the end of the fourth century when Christianity becomes legal. But the big takeaway here, that I've gotta ask you, and I've gotta ask myself, is how big is your God? How big is your God? How truthful is your God? How faithful is your God? How real are his promises? It's important for us, right? That's, because that's the way you strengthen yourself during suffering, right? We bind together and we remind each other that our gospel is our gospel regardless of the circumstances around us. How big is your God? How strong is your God? How faithful is your God? How true is your God? How big are the promises? Are they a big deal? Are they true? Can you stake your life on it? Can you live your life regardless of the circumstances in view that they are true and that I expect them to be fulfilled in the long run? If you need help there, go to... Go to uh, Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12, where the writer of Hebrews says, listen, all of these people stayed firm in their faith and they, because they saw the promises coming. But now you, you've seen the promises. You need to look to Christ. You've seen the redemption. You've seen the plan. You've seen the mystery unfolded. You're in a much better position. So you must stand even firmer than they did. Second question is, is your message good news? Or is it good advice? When you're talking, when you're, when you're teaching your children, are you teaching them good news or are you teaching them good advice? This is how you get ahead in life. This is how you, this is how you deal with the risks in life. This is how you do this. This is how you keep people thinking you're a Christian. Or is, it good, or is it good news? Hey, this is what Jesus has done. Accept the gospel. Now that gospel is gonna transform you. It's gonna change your values. It's gonna change your beliefs. It's gonna change your practices. It's gonna take away some of your idols just like it did the jailer, but it's already been done in Christ. Is your message good news? And how finished is the work of Christ? I mean, really, really. Is the work of Christ finished? Is it done with all of the results and fruit coming from it? Or is it simply a seed planted in your soul that, must, that you must nurture and grow to be saved? I think oftentimes we get it mixed up and it becomes not good advice. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in, in conclusion, 
in that example on advice and on good news, he, may, he says, think of a city that's under attack. And the, the, it sends an uh, um, army out to beat outside the city, and they battle. And a messenger comes back with good news. Now, if they come back and they say, the battle is over, we've won, life is normal, risk is over, fantastic, let's celebrate. That's good news. The battle is done, that's good news. You don't have to do anything, that's good news. Think of it the other way. What happens if the battle doesn't go that way and the messenger comes back? What do they come back with? They come back with the battle was not won you still are at risk. You still have things you need to do. You better get busy doing them because your preservation depends upon you. The good news of the gospel is, is that God has done it all. You look and live and put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for your good news to us. We pray that you would help us to, in, in, to hold on to that good news, hold on to those promises in every situation that you bring to, us into. Help us to finish strong. Help us to finish consistent. Help us to live lives that are worthy of the gospel and worthy of that cloud of witnesses that are all around us. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.